Welcome to TopCast, live, I suppose. Uh, I did this yesterday, so it's the second time I'm doing a live recording of TopCast. And at the end, we'll do some Ask Me Anything questions. Hopefully, I'm coming through loud and clear so people can let me know if, in fact, I cannot be heard or cannot be heard clearly. I've turned down the gain a little, so we say, because, uh, I don't know, it sounded a bit to me when I listened back as if I was coming through a little too loudly, perhaps. Today, I'm reading from, rather than one of David Deutsch's works, um, this here. Um, it is a book by Paul Davies, the great Paul Davies, uh, who is possibly the modern day's most prolific science writer in terms of certainly physics, cosmology, that kind of thing. Inspirational books in a different category, I often say, to the style of book and content of book that David Deutsch writes. I'm, fan of the, I'm a fan of them both, but for quite different reasons. On the one hand, Paul Davies began writing books back in the 70s, and his books have continued with similar themes over the years, kind of repackaging the same kind of content with updated information about what we've learned about the cosmos and have learned about science. So in that sense, it's almost like his works are an ongoing set of scientific news. Um, and so I first read The Mind of God back when it was published in sort of 94, 95. He received the Templeton Prize for that, which is a, a prize that is worth more monetarily than the Nobel Prize. It's got a religious bent to it. It tends to be awarded to, and the Templeton Foundation tends to support work that tends in the direction of the intersection between theology and uh, science. Some people think that you've sold out if you accept a Templeton Prize grant. I think that's ridiculous, of course. Uh, scientists should take whatever money they can from whatever sort they can. The criticism is that, that if you get supported by the Templeton Foundation, then this colours your work in some way. I don't, just don't think that's true. The Templeton Foundation comes to you offering you support and then doesn't place conditions upon, as far as I'm aware, what you do with the money. And anyway, the Templeton Prize certainly was awarded to Paul Davies, not on the basis of him doing research, but rather him writing a book. <laughs> when you read The Mind of God, however, it's wonderful marketing. It's wonderful marketing. The word God only appears on uh, about 13 or 14 pages, something like that. It's not like the work is really about the mind of God. <laughs> when he uses the word God, he's speaking in the Einsteinian sense. Einstein didn't believe in God. He kind of used sometimes loose language in referring to things like the mind of God as a substitute or synonym for uh, the laws of physics, uh, reality as a whole, that kind of thing. And so learning the mind of God just means understanding the laws of physics in some way or other. So after all, if God exists, then he has, or she has, it has determined what the laws of physics are. Okay. Well, at least a creator God would have done that. So let's begin with the reading. Now I have a couple of copies of this, including one that's on the screen. So I'm not going to be reading from the, the, the physical book. And I'm only going to read the one chapter. All of the chapters in this book, it's, it's unique as far as Davies is concerned, because these are more like a collection of articles you know, like newspaper articles, um, reflecting on big questions in science. 
And so I won't be reading them all by any stretch. I'll do a few of these episodes, I would say, because they're very interesting. They go into some of the more recent discoveries, especially in cosmology. Uh, this particular chapter I'm reading today is more about the history and science of the Big Bang, leading into our most recent understanding of the origins of the universe. Uh, Davies was trained in cosmology, and indeed, uh, one of his supervisors was Fred Hoyle, and he's going to mention Fred Hoyle here, uh, somewhat unfairly. When we get there, I might say more about this, but Fred Hoyle is often remembered popularly as that guy who refused to ever accept the Big Bang. Fred Hoyle was a great proponent of the steady state theory. Now, he was mistaken. Okay. He shouldn't be remembered for what he got wrong, but rather, rather for what he got right, because Fred Hoyle was, on the other hand, also, if not the greatest astrophysicist of the 20th century, he certainly deserves to be counted in the top 10, five perhaps, because he was the guy that explained stellar nucleosynthesis. He explained where the elements on the periodic table came from. That's huge. He explained how you get from hydrogen through to everything else. The basic principles He's the first one to sort of put that together. Yeah, of course, these things are collaborations and he was drawing on the work of other people, but he was the guy. He was too how the sun produces the energy that it does as Einstein was to gravity. Fred Hoyle was huge in astrophysics. Um, sadly, in cosmology, which is related to astrophysics, but it's not identical, cosmology is about the universe on the largest scales. The, what effect space-time has on the structure of the entire universe, how it's going to evolve, how it began all that sort of stuff. The origins of the universe and the fate of the universe. It used to be the domain of theology and now is becoming a precision science and you can measure stuff with high precision instruments, scientific instruments. And we'll talk about at least some of these today. Okay, so um, the Big Bang. Let's read this from What's Eating the Universe? by Paul Davies, published just in 2021. It's as of me giving this episode, Topcast, uh, his most recent book. As I say, he's been writing books since the 70s. He's only slightly older than David Deutsch. I'm sure their paths have crossed multiple times. But, you know, I was a great fan of Davies, and it was because Davies appeared to be a great fan of Deutsch that I was led to David Deutsch. I've told that story many times as well. You know, the the... The high praise that David Deutsch received from Paul Davies was more than enough uh, persuasion for me. Okay, so what does Davies say about the Big Bang? This is chapter four of the book. And these are self-contained chapters. Also, another wonderful thing about this book, you can just pick it up and, and read any particular chapter. So, you know, people interested in, in popular science, this is a great book for that. For I guess he's writing it for the world we now live in. People with shorter attention spans, as Naval says, people don't want the book, they want the blog post. And sometimes they don't want the blog post, they just want the tweet. And sometimes they don't want the tweet, just tell them now. <laughs> so Davies has gone from huge epic books about the mind of God down to uh, discrete chapters that stand independently one from another. Okay, so let's go. He writes, chapter four, The Big Bang. 
In Flagstaff, Arizona, there is a famous observatory built in 1894 by a rich businessman, Percival Lowell. His plan was to use the telescopes to look for Martians. In the latter half of the 19th century, this wasn't considered totally off the wall. Scientists openly discussed the possibility that Mars was inhabited, and astronomers searched eagerly for signs of life on the red planet. In 1877, an astronomer, Giovanni Schiaparelli, said he could see straight lines or channels on the planet's surface. And this stopped much speculation about the canals of Mars. Mars fever was brilliantly captured in H.G. Wells's 1898 science fiction story, The War of the Worlds. Fixated by the notion of Martian engineers, Lowell embarked on his own observations, producing elaborate maps of what turned out to be in an entirely fanciful network of, of canals. <laughs> End quote. Okay. These canal, canals that were on the surface of Mars, there's been attributed to a number of things, perhaps to um, Schiaparelli's uh, imagination. <laughs> So they came purely from his imagination. Or perhaps they were artifacts on the telescope lens, to be generous to him, perhaps. Now, this is why we say observation is theory-laden. Observation is theory-laden. He was seeing canals that just weren't there. Or canals, canals. Why am I saying canals? <laughs> canals that just weren't there. So if your lens is scratched and you're looking at a distant object like Mars, it might very well appear that there are these channels, these rivers, these water-carrying bodies on the surface of Mars. <laughs> Observation is theory-laden. What you see is not necessarily the truth. In fact, there was nothing on Mars, okay? So either it could have actually been entirely within his own mind, entirely. That's why we have such a thing as science, so we can check, we can check the observations of each other. All right, let's continue. Davies writes, while Lowell pursued his quixotic quest, Rather more conventional astronomy was also being conducted at his observatory. By the late 19th century, telescopes had advanced to the point where they could probe far beyond the confines of our Milky Way galaxy. A big issue of the day concerned the large-scale organisation of the cosmos. In particular, what were all those nebulae, wispy patches of light, seen scattered across the sky? Were they giant clouds located within our galaxy, or were they entire galaxies, in their own right, too far away for the individual stars to be discerned? End quote. Why didn't they know? Why didn't they know that these, you know, the Andromeda galaxy, for example, you look at the Andromeda galaxy, it can be seen with the naked eye, it looks like a star. How could they not have known back then that it wasn't in our own galaxy? Well, because they had no method for figuring out the distance to very distant objects. When we want to determine the distance to a star, the first and indeed the only direct, direct way, I use the word direct provisively, but I'll get to the reasons why in a moment. I say that this is a, this is a precise method where you can use an instrument, an instrument to determine the distance to the object, rather than making further assumptions. Okay. All observation is theory-laden. Let me. If you want to determine the distance to a star, then you can use this method called parallax. Very, 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 very distant objects appear to be fixed in the sky, no matter what position the Earth occupies around the sun. However, 
as the Earth does go around the sun, some of the closer stars appear to move. And the closer stars appear to move the most, and the more distant stars appear to move the least, until once you reach past about, for ground-based telescopes, something like 300, perhaps out to 1,000 light years at most, depending upon how powerful your telescope is, you do not notice these stars moving at all. Now, you can notice parallax yourself by simply putting your own finger in front of your face and looking with one eye and comparing the position of your finger to the background, then opening it and closing the other eye and looking at the finger. You'll see the finger appears to move. That's called the parallax effect. Exactly the same thing happens when the Earth goes around the sun. Close stars appear to move relative to the background, and the degree by which they move can be measured. So you're only making a measurement of that angle, and D equals 1 over P. Wonderfully simple equation. The distance in um, parsecs and P, the parallax angle in arc seconds. This direct relationship. That's why I say direct measurement. So long as you can measure that angle using an instrument, okay, when I say instrument, what they're doing is they have photographic plates and they measure how far across the sky the thing moves, okay, so on and so forth. But that can tell you to high precision how far away these stars are, okay? What do you do for all the other stars? Well, here's what you can do. You can find that within your, let's call it a thousand light year radius, you can find some special stars. One group of special stars are called the Cepheid variables. Cepheid variables are, as the name would suggest, variable stars. They expand and contract, expand and contract with a regular period, a regular period, a very regular period that can be measured. You notice the luminosity of these things go up and down. The brightness goes up and down, up and down, up and down. There is a relationship between the period, how, how you know, frequent the things are getting bright and dark right now. You're talking the order of days, by the way. You know, um, uh, Maybe it has a, a brightness to dimness sort of um, period of three days. So the actual period would be six days, okay? They're going from bright to bright to bright, dim, dim, dim. There is a relationship between the period and the inherent luminosity, the inherent brightness of these Cepheid variables. So if you've got one within the 1,000 light year limit of parallax, you can measure the distance to it directly. And then you make a further assumption. The further assumption is all such Cepheid variables for which you have the capacity to see them out beyond the limit of 1,000 light years have exactly the same properties as the Cepheid variables within 1,000 light years which you know the distance to. If you know the distance to these Cepheid variables, number one, and you know their apparent brightness, which you know with a photomultiplier here on the ground on Earth, how bright the thing appears in the sky, then you can determine what the inherent brightness must be. It's called the absolute magnitude or just the luminosity, how bright it really is compared to something like the sun. Okay, if you put it and the sun side by side, you would know. They're the three things that are related. The distance to the object, the how bright it appears in the sky at the moment, and its inherent luminosity, how bright it really is. Obviously, a really bright thing inherently, that was genuinely really bright if you were near it, would appear very dim if it's very distant. But we have this relationship, this relationship between 
the what's called the apparent magnitude, how bright it appears, the absolute magnitude, which is standardized as how bright the thing would appear at 10 light years away, and the distance. Okay, these three things are related. So if you have these good distance measurements using parallax, then you can just make the further assumption that if you find a Cepheid variable elsewhere in the universe, certainly within the galaxy, that given its apparent brightness, you measure the period, that's easy, okay? You measure the period of the thing, and that will tell you what the inherent luminosity of it is. So once you've got those two things, the apparent brightness, easy, you get that from Earth, you measure the period, that tells you the luminosity because of the period-luminosity relationship, then you can determine the distance to that star. So now you've got what's called a standard candle, this thing in the universe that tells you when you find it in a distant galaxy, how far away that galaxy is, approximately speaking. And this is in fact what is done. Cepheid variables are very good for this. Understanded candle that's used, especially in cosmology, trying to find the distance to very, very distant galaxies because, well, eventually you get to the point where you simply can't see the Cepheid variables in other galaxies, they're just too far away is a type 1a supernova. A type 1a supernova is a supernova with very predictable inherent luminosity. For these things, you have to do fancy physics calculations because what's going on is you've got a big star next to a small star, and the big star is sucking material from the small star. It's accreting, it's collecting that material from the small star. Eventually, that big star goes beyond a certain limit of mass, and that certain limit of mass causes it to explode as a supernova, for reasons I won't get into the full astrophysics here, but there's a specific mass at which that happens. A specific mass at which that happens. Sorry, I got it around the wrong way. I just realized, <laughs> what am I talking about? It's the small star, often a white dwarf, often it's a white dwarf, that is accreting material from the big star. That's what's going on. This big star, as in big as in volume, also in mass perhaps, it is close to this white dwarf star and it is accreting material, accreting material, collecting material from this white dwarf star. Once the white dwarf star exceeds a certain limit, uh, I think this is called the Chandrasekhar limit. I forget my limits. Yes, it is the Chandrasekhar limit. Um, once that limit is, is exceeded, then the star explodes. And all such white dwarfs explode at precisely the same mass, producing exactly the same luminosity, the same brightness. So this is a standard candle. So now if you see one of these things occur throughout the universe, and by the way, all of these type 1a supernovae have precisely the same light curves. So they're all different sorts of supernovae, right? So how do you know you're seeing a type 1a supernova? How do you know you're seeing the one where it's the white dwarf accreting material from the other big star rather than just some random star ending its life? How, do you, how can you distinguish? Because you plot the luminosity over time of these objects, and there is a characteristic curve, a specific way in which the, the, the light changes over time. It reaches the maximum, and then it falls back down again. So uh, that's how we can determine the distance to very distant galaxies, because very distant galaxies, they're going to have... Um, it's going to be difficult to tell how far away they are unless you've got something very, very bright. And a supernova is extremely bright and predictable with its light curve. So that's how we determine the distance to distant objects. What Davies is talking about here 
is a time when we didn't have these techniques. We didn't know enough about astrophysics to know all this sort of stuff. We knew, we knew about parallax, but once you get beyond the 1,000 light year limit, approximately, you don't know how far away things are. And so you didn't know whether or not the Andromeda galaxy was, as it is, 2.2 million light years away, or merely within inside the, inside the galaxy at a mere 20,000 light years away. You couldn't distinguish between these two situations. If there's anyone there listening, just give me a sign that you can hear me. Otherwise, I <laughs> could be talking into the ether. Um, let's continue. Uh, Davies goes on to write, quote, in 1909, a Lowell Observatory astronomer named Vesto Slipher set about examining the quality of the light from the mysterious nebulae. The only telescope he had was a relatively modest 24-inch instrument. So this was slow, painstaking, repetitive work. With no fancy electronic gizmos of the sort astronomers have today, all observations had to be done by hand and eye, often with on-the-fly improvisations to coax the best out of the equipment. Slipher analysed the faint nebulous glows with a device called a spectroscope, designed to split light into its constituent colours. He laboured away night after night, often in freezing conditions, recording the results on film. In those days, an astronomer's lot was not a happy one. Yet the compulsion that drives the slippers of this world is that dedicated toil in some small corner of a subject can unexpectedly strike gold. And that's just what happened. That's just what happened at Lowell Observatory. By 1912, Slipher had assembled enough data to conclude that most nebulae were measurably redder in the color, measurably redder in color than the Milky Way. Why was that? An explanation was immediately apparent. When a light source is receding at great speed, the emitted light waves are stretched, shifting the wavelength towards the red end of the color spectrum. Slipher therefore concluded that most nebulae are rushing away from us. Uh, end quote. So, um, yes, Slipher made this big advance, and Davies was about to say that. However, however, although he was the first one to notice these things moving away from us, he didn't know they were galaxies. He didn't know they were galaxies. And so that's, that's why he isn't given the credit that Hubble was later on. But a lot of people make a big deal about this. It's like, oh, Slipher deserves the credit for actually figuring out that the universe was expanding. No, no, he didn't. No, no. He did figure out that these things had redshift, had large redshift, and they're rushing away from us, but he didn't, he couldn't solve the mystery. So Vesto Slipher did make these excellent observations, but he didn't know what they meant. So he couldn't explain them. Now, this is an important distinction to make. Okay, so in terms of the history, let's keep going. Davies goes on to say, with hindsight, we can see that 1912 marked the true birth of modern cosmology, but there was no fanfare, no press conference, just a careful technical paper buried in the observatory's bulletin, end quote. Well, yes and no, but like, why would people have fanfare about this? It was a problem. It was a mystery. No one knew. Um, again, if they had, have, if Slipher had have said, hey, look, I know that the higher redshift means they're further away. That would have been something, but he didn't. He didn't know that. So all he knew was that, well, he made this measurement. He made this measurement that um, 
that all of these objects had redshift. Okay. Davies goes on to say, it took several years and many more observations before Slipher's discovery gained prominence, eventually coming to the attention of a certain Edwin Hubble, uh, a lawyer-turned-astronomer, rarely seen without a pipe. Mm -hmm. In 1924, Hubble used the big 100-inch telescope at Mount Wilson in California, then the world's largest, to measure the distance to the Andromeda Galaxy, the Andromeda Nebula, the Andromeda Nebula, by managing to detect individual stars, and in doing so, proved that Andromeda is in fact another entire galaxy like the Milky Way, end quote. Yes. So at the time when Slipher did this, it was the Andromeda Nebula, not the Andromeda Galaxy, but he was able to, with, his, with this huge telescope, a 100-inch telescope, discern individual stars. And therefore, if you could discern individual stars, then, well, this was a thing that was um, uh, not within our galaxy. And if he can see Cepheid variables, he can determine precisely the distance to this galaxy, which is eventually done. Uh, Hubble went on to estimate the distances to another 23 galaxies. Then he combined his results with Slipher's redshift measurements and glimpsed the outline of something systematic. The farther away the galaxy was located, the redder its light and the faster its recession. It seemed to be in proportion. The simplest interpretation of this pattern was that the universe was gradually expanding, growing larger over a time scale of billions of years, end quote. Yes. So this can be summed up. This result is summed up in four words, the further, the faster, the further, the faster. So the further away a galaxy is, the faster it's moving away from us. So you go, ah, what's special about us? Why are we, you know, um, why is everything moving away from us? Well, it's not. It wouldn't matter what galaxy you're in, you would notice every galaxy moving away from you because the entire universe is expanding. Space itself is growing in between these galaxies. But not all the galaxies, some, like the Andromeda galaxy in particular, is actually moving towards us because they're gravitationally bound. Gravity, when objects are close together, is more powerful for the time being than the tendency of space to expand. So it can locally stop the expansion of space. After all, space is not expanding where you are or where I am. I'm not growing taller. We are not getting further apart. Uh, the intermolecular bonds of my body are keeping me together. The expansion of space doesn't make any difference. But possibly more importantly, locally here, the space is being held together by something like the Earth, okay? The curvature of space is preventing it from uh, growing. Okay. So Hubble has just found this further the faster proportionality, this wonderful straight line that one can draw between uh, redshifts and distances, this, uh, uh, this relationship. And Davies goes on to say, quote, Hubble duly announced his results to the world in the New York Times, on 23rd of November, 1924. It was undoubtedly one of the most momentous discoveries of the 20th century, and plaudits were soon showered upon the Pope's mic, Pope, <laughs> and plaudits were soon showered upon the pipe-smoking astronomer, leaving Vesto Slipher as the unsung hero of the expanding universe, end quote. Yes, but again, again, we have to say, what he did, impressive though it was, was to provide the problem, not the solution. Okay, yes, it's important for 
scientists who come up with problems, every solution reveals a new problem. Okay. You know, um, uh, he, he, he wondered what these things were, these nebula in the sky, Vesto Slipher. And he, by looking, encountered another problem. This often happens in, in astronomy. You point your telescope somewhere and you find things that you don't understand. You encounter more problems. The invention of the telescope solves a lot of stuff. How to see things that previously could not be seen. But then it opens up a world of problems. <laughs> like, why do they all have redshift? What are these things that have redshift? All of them. Problem. Solution. Hubble. Saying that these objects are actually outside of our galaxy. And relationship. The further away they are, the faster they're moving. Problem. Why? Well, huh, expansion of space. Expansion of space. Um, Davies goes on to say, quote, with the realisation that the universe isn't just there, an unchanging collection of glowing oddments, but is a dynamic system evolving with time. A host of questions arose about its trajectory. Where had this system come from? And where was it heading? What determines how fast the universe is expanding? Could the expansion rate change with time? When did it begin? And will it go on forever? Two implications of the expansion were immediately obvious. First, if the expansion is getting bigger, it must previously have been smaller and denser. Second, the effect on gravity a universal attractive force, would act like a break on the expansion, slowing the recession of the galaxies as they pulled on each other. Because of this deceleration, the expansion must have been faster in the past. Hubble's observations weren't extensive or accurate enough to detect any change in the rate of expansion over the few million years that they encompassed. However, the breaking effect of gravity was easy enough to study theoretically, and as early as 1921, the Russian astronomer Alexander Friedman had calculated precisely how the expansion rate would gradually slow, but his deliberations were mostly ignored. Astronomers were flirting with one of the most far-reaching discoveries in the history of science, but such was the tentative nature of these early results that no leading scientist was prepared to take the plunge and state the obvious implication. <laughs> End quote. Yes, so the obvious implication was that the universe in the past was smaller and keep on going back in the past. Everything was on top of everything else. Eventually, there was a time when the universe had zero size. If you could extrapolate back you know, like that. So this then becomes uh, a problem. It suggests the universe had an origin in time, which seems to be a creation event. That's a problem. <laughs> After all, what caused this creation event? So who solved this? Who solved this, this problem? I was willing to state this. Well, Davies goes on to say, in the event, it fell to a young Belgian priest and theoretical physicist, Abbe Georges Lemaitre, to come out and claim explicitly in 1927 that the universe we now observe must have begun billions of years ago as a cosmic egg, a state of enormous density that expanded with explosive force. This was the precursor to the modern 
Big Bang Theory. You might have expected that a declaration of such profound importance would be a scientific, not to mention theological sensation. Yet again, however, the response was muted. Hubble himself doubted Lemaitre's conclusion. Albert Einstein, by then the world's greatest authority on gravitation and cosmology, was equally dismissive. Your calculations are correct, he wrote to Lemaitre, but your physics is atrocious. <laughs> Einstein, has all, Einstein had also shrugged Friedman's earlier theoretical effort aside. And indeed, he only accepted that the universe was actually expanding after visiting Hubble in California in 1931. After that, he did a U-turn and backed Lemaitre's work. In spite of this illustrious endorsement, speculation about the origin of the universe wasn't taken very seriously in the 1930s. Indeed, cosmology was hardly even a recognised subject. Um, yeah, yeah. So Einstein seems to have not had the courage of his convictions because general relativity, and you know, he worked with this guy called De Sitter. I think that does now does Davies mention De Sitter? There was this other physicist, De Sitter, who was sort of a, a mathematician uh, as well as physicist. Now, he doesn't mention him, I don't think. Um, so anyway, Einstein and De Sitter figured out that general relativity predicted space was not entirely stable. And so the thing should have been contracting or expanding. Uh, De Sitter's kind of said, well, the universe should be expanding because if it was contracting, we would have noticed. Um, you know, and it, it depends on how much mass there is in the universe, which is a difficult thing to estimate as to whether or not you have contraction after a while. So anyway, Einstein should have just stuck with his own theory and said, well, what does the theory say? If the theory says that space expands or contracts as a whole, then that's what it does. And then you go out and you um, see what the observations tell you. And in fact, of course, you know we know now uh, Hubble's observations um, show that the universe is indeed expanding. The space is expanding. Okay, let's go on. Davy says, quote, Happily, the theoretical work of Friedman and Lemaitre wasn't gotten though it took another two decades before it was revivified by George Gamow, a defector from the Soviet Union working in the United States. Gamow wasn't an astronomer, he was a nuclear physicist. It was he who explained the type of radioactivity known as alpha decay. Gamow reasoned that the young, highly compressed universe must have been hot enough to permit nuclear reactions. Consequently, it would have glowed like a furnace, which raised a fascinating possibility. Might a fading remnant of that primordial heat still pervade the universe today, forming a cosmic background of microwave radiation? End quote. Yeah, wonderful. Okay, so explained alpha decay. This is where you have heavy nuclei releasing what is essentially a helium nucleus. You know, two protons and two neutrons, HE2+. Uh, they come firing out of the, the nucleus. This is the... In, in one sense, the least penetrating kind of radiation, so the least dangerous, as long as it's outside of your body, you're safe from it. There's alpha radiation, there's beta radiation, which is a stream of electrons. That's more energetic, more dangerous. And then there's gamma radiation, the most energetic of all. Photons of light 
at exceedingly high frequency, which is the worst of all. Uh, a nuclear bomb will produce all of these things, all these kinds of radiation. Uh, there's a sense in which, you know, the, although alpha radiation is the least dangerous, you know, as so long as, you know, you could be in a room of alpha radiation sources and you're reasonably safe in a way that if you're in a room with gamma radiation sources or beta radiation sources, you're not. But if the alpha radiation gets inside you, then you're in all sorts of trouble. You know, this is the famous case of polonium poisoning by the Russian government of certain people over time. They like to use polonium because it's an alpha emitter and uh, it can quickly disappear. But if it gets in you, you know, sprinkle a little bit of stuff on your food, uh, an awful way to die, but a very effective means of assassinating someone. Uh, so not good. Uh, okay. So could we have seen the heat left over from the Big Bang? This is what Gamow was postulating. Well, yes. Okay. And uh, so here we get to the discovery of the so-called CMB, Cosmic Microwave Background. Davies goes on to write, quote, Gamow was on the right track. In 1964, two scientists working on satellite communications at the Bell Laboratory in New Jersey accidentally came across this remnant heat, bathing the universe at a temperature of about 2.7 degrees above absolute zero. Absolute zero is about minus 273 degrees Celsius. It showed up as, annoying, as an annoying hiss in their receiver. All attempts to explain it away as a defect in the equipment, including pigeon droppings in the antenna, failed. <laughs> yes. Now, um, and this was called a um, a white dielectric substance. <laughs> the pigeon droppings. They spent days trying to clean their big antenna of pigeon droppings because they thought that that was where the interference was coming from. No, they detected the heat left over from the Big Bang. Davis goes on to say, and the only explanation left was that disturbance came from outer space. This was the Big Bang smoking gun. Now, if memory serves, the story was that uh, these two guys who were awarded the Nobel Prize for this, by the way, uh, just happened to be overheard uh, at coffee one day in a cafe by another physicist who said that this was precisely the thing that George Gamow had postulated, you know, that they were looking for this heat left over from the Big Bang. But these guys not being... Uh, Astrophysicists didn't know about it. Um, Penzias and Wilson was their name. Uh, Arno Penzias and some Wilson. Uh, they discovered the CMB. They were the first guys to point a instrument at the sky and detect in all directions this 2.7 Kelvin temperature so that empty space was not completely devoid of energy but contained heat. What heat? The heat left over from the Big Bang. But after 13.8 billion years, it had cooled to this. Obviously, it started off hot, but now spread throughout this vast volume of space and stretched also, by the way, that therefore you have um, uh, such a cool temperature now, but it would have been very hot in the past, in the very distant past.
Davies goes on to say. So after having said, we've found the Big Bang smoking gun. Davies says, quote, suddenly cosmology was propelled into the scientific mainstream and began to attract some of the brightest minds in physics and mathematics, the likes of Roger Penrose and Stephen Hawking. The origin of the universe in a Big Bang was at least, was at last taken seriously and became the focus of intense theoretical analysis. Astronomers began to clamour for better observations of the cosmic microwave background, today referred to simply as the CMB, confident that it contained crucial clues about the early universe. Because of atmospheric absorption, a decent view of the CMB needs a satellite, and that's what they got. In November 1989, NASA launched COBE, and with it, cosmology's golden age. End quote. End of the chapter as well. Um, yeah, the, COBE was what got a fellow called George Smoot, the Nobel Prize. George Smoot had a fairly large team. Uh, they launched the Cosmic Microwave Background Explorer, the satellite, that took highly precise measurements of the Cosmic Microwave Background that revealed that it wasn't exactly 2.7 Kelvin in all directions because that was a problem. Solution problem, solution problem. The problem was if the... Cosmic microwave background was uniform in all directions, exactly the same in all directions. That meant the beginning of the universe was uniform everywhere. The, the, the early universe would have been just as uniform as the heat left over by it. So therefore, why isn't the universe uniform? After all, here's a planet Earth, there's a sun, here's a galaxy, and it doesn't look uniform. It looks inhomogeneous, heterogeneous. <laughs> Um, there are galaxies here and there are not galaxies there. That's inhomogeneity. <laughs> it's not uniform. So anyway, they pointed their satellite at space. You know, the satellite which was able to take, which detect microwaves. Uh, it's very, uh, these long wavelength waves and measure it precisely and produce a map of the sky and you get what are called anisotropies. If something's isotropic, it's the same in all directions. If it's anisotropic, it's not the same in all directions. So they found that it wasn't the same in all directions. You know, if you go down not to the first decimal place, 2.7, but you go down to like the fourth or fifth decimal place, okay? Um, 2.701 in this direction, 2.702 in this direction. Um, so that kind of thing. And so that's how they, they figured out that, you know, the... The early universe wasn't uniform either, and hence that's why the universe now is not uniform. And why wouldn't the early universe have been uniform? Well, because you've got quantum effects happening then. When the universe was really small, these quantum effects mean that you can't have perfect uniformity. You have fluctuations in everything, including the amount of energy in different areas, different regions of space, especially when the, the universe itself is smaller than an atom. Quantum effects then uh, dominate. So we should expect uh, anisotropies, inhomogeneities. Yeah. Uh, now, this was um, uh, George Smoot was the guy, as I said, and his student was Charlie Lineweaver, another one of my intellectual heroes, also happened to be a lecturer of mine. He was the guy that processed the data, Charlie Lineweaver, who I've mentioned on TopCast many times before, well worth looking up Charlie Lineweaver and going to his their web pages. He's a very engaging speaker. And more than that, his oeuvre of research 
stretches across all of physics, especially cosmology. But you know, if you're into aliens and that kind of stuff, he is he's the guy who looks into astrobiology and that kind of thing. Uh, just very interesting areas of research. Uh, lesser known, I think he should be more well known than he is. Uh, and also has worked with Paul Davies. And you know, the feather in my cap is I always say I was the one who introduced them because <laughs> I saw Davies at uh, an event, a science event, went up to him because I was a, a starstruck um, student and he was a hero of mine, wanted his autograph. You know, he was very polite and asked me what I did. I said I was you know, studied physics at the University of New South Wales. Um, you know, Charlie Lineweaver is one of my lecturers, and um, he said, Oh, you know, Charlie Lineweaver. Um, so I said, Yes, I did. And so, um, he gave me his card and I introduced him to Charlie. And then they went on to author papers together. Um, and so now I think they still, you know, they, they do, they collaborate. They probably would have collaborated anyway, regardless of whether or not <laughs> I'd ever been involved there like a catalyst. Um, so there are a couple of other things just to read here. Um, because in this chapter, Davies has two boxes, two boxes of additional information. So let me read the boxes of additional information. And then I'm going to go to questions for anyone who has me has questions for me. And the boxes of information are, firstly, the first one is titled Hubble Wars. Davies writes, quote, the rate of expansion of the universe is expressed as a number known as the Hubble constant or H. The man himself assigned H a value of 500. In the peculiar system of units that astronomers prefer, that means a galaxy about 3.3 million light years away is receiving on average at 500 kilometers per second. Given H and factoring in the breaking effect of gravity, you can work out the age of the universe. Hubble's original value put the universe at only about 2 billion years old, less than half the age of the Earth. Astronomers lifted their game and produced estimates of H that progressively pushed back at the inferred age, but they were divided into two warring factions. One touted a value of uh, 180 for H and the other one was 55, using the same methods, and each insisting that the errors in measurement were far too small to close the gap. The discrepancy was an important issue because the smaller the number, the greater the age of the universe. In the 1980s, data from the Hubble Space Telescope put paid to the angst. H finally came out at 73, a nice compromise, making the universe 13.8 billion years old by current estimates. But recently, a new discrepancy has surfaced. Measurements of H using cosmic microwave background data yield a value of only 67, implying an age for the universe of well over 14 billion years. Does this suggest something seriously amiss with our understanding of basic cosmology? Time will tell. End quote. So my thoughts on that. Yeah, this is another interesting problem. COBE was the first satellite to go up there and to produce a map of the universe. Then there was WMAP the so-called Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe, which got even more detailed, refined, accurate, precise measurement, I should say precise, not accurate, measurements of the cosmic microwave background. And recently we've had the Planck Observatory as well, another uh, satellite in space that takes even more high-resolution images of the cosmic microwave background. Okay. When you look at these patches of light, you know, it looks like a, a strange pattern. You can look up the Planck data for the cosmic microwave background. What they do is look at the size of these patches. And the size of these patches tells them something about the expansion rate of the universe, and it tells them something about 
um, the age of the universe. Uh, I think that is a less precise way of doing things. So I would expect the error there, you know, spot what they say, to be greater than the error using um, the Hubble technique of the redshift of galaxies, using the original Hubble technique. But, you know, there, there are big errors in all of this stuff. One of the other, you know, concerns I've had and certainly real astronomers have is, I was talking about type 1A supernovas earlier on, these type 1A supernovas are assumed throughout the universe to have the same luminosity no matter where they go off. And this is based on, you know, uh, computer simulations. But the computer simulations are only as good as the data you feed into them with the laws of physics that you have and the initial conditions you have and so on and so forth. But who knows if these distant supernova, type 1A, made of different stuff because the universe very far away in the very early parts of the universe consisted of slightly different chemicals. It took a while for, you know, astrophysics to produce different kinds of chemicals. And I don't think we have a, we have a good understanding, but a good enough understanding to really think that, you know, all of these ways of predicting what should happen in a supernova, given what the star is made out of, are necessarily going to be equally <laughs> accurate, <laughs> let's say. Maybe a type 1A supernova that occurs in the Andromeda galaxy, made of Andromeda galaxy stuff, maybe we have a good understanding of that, but put the same kind of supernova in a galaxy 3 billion light years away, the chemistry is subtly different. Does that subtle difference make a difference to type 1A supernova? I don't know, but mm, hypothesis. Apparently, they rule these things out, and I'm not entirely convinced. So, yeah, at the moment, there are good reasons to think that we should expect different estimates for um, the Hubble constant and therefore the rate of the expansion of the universe and therefore the age of the universe as well. But I always say 13.8 until such time as we have, you know, the textbook writers agreeing <laughs> that, that the number needs to be updated. Uh, the second box I'm going to read is just a brief one. Um, and well, just go through it. Davy says, quote, did the bang, Big Bang really happen? Not all astronomers accepted the link between the cosmic expansion and an explosive origin. Ironically, the familiar moniker Big Bang was initially coined by the British astronomer Fred Hoyle in 1949, while dismissing the idea. Yeah. Um, end quote. Yeah, he was on a radio show, I think, on the BBC. And, you know, he dismissed it as oh, that silly Big Bang idea. And so the name stuck. Ironically, the guy who was an opponent of it named it. Anyway, Hoyle goes, I mean, Davies goes on to say of Hoyle, Hoyle thought Lamartre's model of a universe exploding into a into being was nonsense and developed a completely different interpretation of Hubble's observations called the steady state theory. The basic idea is that as the universe expands, the galaxies move apart, so new matter is continually created, gradually aggregating into fresh galaxies to fill the ever-growing gaps. As a result, on a very large scale, the universe would look much the same forever. A mix of old and new galaxies sustained by a process of continual replenishment there would be no beginning, no end, no hot, dense primordial state. Hoyle fought fiercely for his theory, 
marshalling a band of loyal supporters. For about 20 years, the two theories rivaled each other for support. But then the, knock then the knockout blow came. The discovery of the CMB had no credible explanation within the steady state model and support for it rapidly dwindled. I went to work with Hoyle in Cambridge at this critical juncture. He was this world-famous astronomer and public celebrity known for his science fiction novels as well as his research, strangely isolated, casting around for some way to rescue the essence of his theory, perhaps by treating the Big Bang as an interlude rather than an absolute origin. He gave up on the idea that particles of matter were continually created in a thin soup throughout space in favour of concentrated creation centres. In the 1960s, highly compact objects called quasars were discovered that fling out huge quantities of energetic material. Hoyle believed these energetic sources were cosmic spigots, pouring brand new matter into the universe. But the simplicity of the original steady state concept was lost, and in 1972, Hoyle resigned his chair at Cambridge in disillusionment and became something of a recluse, tucked away in a remote cottage in Cumbria, where he filled his days fell walking, sniping at the scientific establishment, end quote. Yeah. But remember, he is a hero in astrophysics. He was the guy that explained stellar nuclear synthesis, how the elements are produced. And by the way, the steady state theory also couldn't explain the ratio of hydrogen to helium to all the other elements. The fact that around about 75, 74, 75% of by mass of the universe is hydrogen and 24% is helium and you know 1% or less is the rest of the stuff is explained by the Big Bang. It's explained by the Big Bang theory. And the dark night sky is explained by the Big Bang Theory. It's the resolution of Olber's paradox. If you had the steady state and this infinite universe was around forever, how do you get around a super bright night sky? I don't think there's an answer to that in steady state. You know, there, there, there's hedges and there's attempts to work around it. But the best explanation, the best explanation is the Big Bang, because it answers all those things. It explains why there's a dark night sky. It explains the Hubble expansion. It explains the nucleosynthesis, Big Bang nucleosynthesis, the ratio of hydrogen to helium, and it explains the CMB, the cosmic microwave background heat left over in, um, from the Big Bang. So that's that. Um, and that is the, the end of the reading. Um, good hour there on Paul Davies, uh, What's Eating the Universe? Now, uh, I have questions that I neglected to answer from last time from Twitter. So I'm just going to go to those. Uh, the first of which is from Tybalt. Uh, uh, because I... Uh, I did answer his question last time, but, but he, he clarified on Twitter and I, uh, I may have misunderstood what he was saying. So he was saying, why does, why is the reach of a theory, scientific theory, determined by its hard to vary characteristics? And I said, it's not, you know, these are independent things, you know, what makes a theory a good explanation is it's hard to vary us. But, you know, I use the example of my cat. It can be a good explanation that my cat is in the other room right now. It can be a good explanation that I'm drinking some water. These are good explanations with zero reach, but they're hard to vary. Very exceedingly hard to vary. The cat, there's no other place for the cat to be. This transparent liquid substance here that isn't killing me when I take a sip 
um, is is hard to vary from the fact that it's water. The explanation that it's water. So no reach, but hard to vary. On the other hand, any claim that's universal has potentially infinite reach out to the far reaches of the universe. Uh, Newtonian gravity is the universal law of gravitation. Once you say that it applies here on Earth, it's the law of gravity. Gravity exists anywhere there's mass. It suddenly applies throughout the entire universe. Reach. Reach. Okay. Uh, but Tibalt has, has come back with uh, clarification. He said he was referring specifically to a particular extract. Um, so I'm just going to read the extract that he provided to me. Um, where he's firstly he's quoted, he said he's referring to particularly where David says the better an explanation is, the more rigidly its reach is determined. Okay, rigidly the reach is determined. So the reach it's hard to vary its reach when you have a good explanation. Quite right. So the fact that you're hard to vary makes all parts of the theory hard to vary. Every every aspect of the theory becomes hard to vary. What it says exists, what it predicts what its reach is, what it explains about reality, all of that stuff becomes hard to vary. Okay, but let's, let's read this. Uh, David wrote, quote, it is determined by the content of the explanation itself. The better an explanation is, the more rigidly its reach is determined because the harder it is to vary an explanation, the harder it is in particular to construct a variant with a different reach, whether larger or smaller, that is still an explanation. He goes on to say, we expect the law of gravity to be the same on Mars as on Earth because only one viable explanation of gravity is known, Einstein's general theory of relativity, and that is a universal theory. But we do not expect the map of Mars to resemble the map of Earth because our theories about how Earth looks, despite being excellent explanations, have no reach to the appearance of any other astronomical object. So yeah, so David's saying there, the the effect upon the reach, given how hard to vary the theory is. Well, I can assert any old theory right now um, that 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 has reach, that has universal reach throughout the universe. Um, at all points of space time, there exists infinite fairies. And these fairies observe the cosmos. They don't interact by any physical force and they can't be detected through gravity or light or anything else. They cannot be detected. But they're absolutely crucial for consciousness and the capacity of consciousness to give rise to everything in the universe. This is the purpose of fairies. And there's infinite of them. Now, that theory is a theory with vast reach. It reaches everywhere in space, but also it reaches into everything, every consciousness and everything that exists. How do things come into being? You think of them and the fairies that exist everywhere bring those things into being. Ridiculous theory. Why? Because easy to vary, bad explanation. Why fairies and not name your other thing? What are the properties of these fairies? I can't test for these fairies. I've just, out of whole cloth, invented fairies. I could have said elves, 
I could have said dragons. I could have said enzymes. It doesn't matter. I could, you know, the word fairy is serving no purpose here. And indeed, the theory is serving no purpose. It's not explaining anything. It's providing more problems than it solves. But this is the kind of theory that you get, by the way, in certain versions of the anthropic principle and so on. Um, certain ways of thinking about quantum theory, incorrect ways, misconceived ways, that consciousness brings reality into existence. I've just added fairies to it, trying to provide a mechanism. They don't provide a mechanism. Um, but there you go. So that's that's reach, but easy to vary. All right, so there's one situation. But here's another. Okay. Space is filled with vacuum energy at all points, and it acts to accelerate the expansion of space. Okay, that's a theory. That's also testable. It has reach everywhere throughout space, but nowhere into consciousness. It's not like, it's only confined to effects on space-time. This, by the way, is one explanation, not great, but it is offered as explaining the accelerating expansion of the universe, the dark energy. Could be a form of vacuum energy. But the calculations don't work out. Okay, so it's a problem. But there is this vacuum energy, right? There is this vacuum energy that exists in otherwise empty space because you know Heisenberg's uncertainty principle says that you know, you're looking at a, a, a very small region of space. Then within a certain time, you're not certain about what the energy is and the energy can come in to that part of space. There's a non, you know, you can never be sure that in the region of space you're looking at, you're going to have zero energy. So all of space is permeated with some amount of, some non-zero amount of energy because of quantum theory. Um, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. So there it is. So this might have the effect of accelerating the expansion of space. But it doesn't have anything to do. That's got infinite reach. It's harder to vary than certainly my original fairy idea. Um, but its reach is limited. Its reach is limited by the fact that it is talking about specific things, about space and energy. It's not talking about consciousness, for example, or, or how stars shine let's say. Okay, so maybe that makes things clearer. Uh, I hope, well, we'll see. <laughs> uh, someone else asked, um, uh, oh yeah, I, I, I posted a thing where Jordan Pearson appeared on a Fox News program with a fellow called Tucker Carlson. And I quoted Jordan Peterson after I listened to what he was saying, he was talking about his ideas, his very Jungian ideas, that, you know, everything's a story, we've got narratives, you know, it's a good way of looking at the Bible and how the Bible is constructed. I think he does well on that kind of thing. These narratives contain deep messages about truth, about how societies work, let's say, and how morals work and how relationships work. And the Bible tries to get some of that across using stories. But Jordan said, you know, everything's a story. Everything we know is a story. It's all a story. It's all this great story. In fact, quote from Jordan Peterson, he said, even our object level perceptions 
are micro stories. Our object perceptions are micro stories, end quote. I said, this may be taking story a little far, as if, as if that's the case, then those stories are highly inexplicit, which would be a strange story to tell, namely a story we don't know how to tell. In other words, perception, raw perception is the thing that we try to explain, but we can't explain all of it. The very act of perception consciousness is, is something we know we have, but we can't provide an explanation of it yet. We don't know how to describe what it's like to see red, for example, or to see the blue sky. What does the blue sky look like to you? You just have to say it's blue. Well, what does your blue look like? Can you convey that to me? No, we can't. We don't know how to describe our qualia, as we say. We use these words, but I don't know if my blue is the same as your blue and your red is the same as my red. You know, kids in high school figure this stuff out and your minds are blown. Most people's minds are blown when they first encounter this idea, this concept. But no matter how life, how long your life goes on, it appears as though you don't get any resolution to this particular question. How do we know that we're perceiving the world in the same way? To some extent, we know we aren't. We're in a different place in space, for one thing. But also, we've probably got different receptors in our eyes, slightly different. So my blues might appear different to your blues, but how different? How different? Don't know. No way to communicate this. No way to experience what someone else is experiencing. So if that's a story, it's a highly inexplicit one, I'm saying. It's a story told not using words. So I don't think everything's a story. And I think this is related to this idea that I was speaking about yesterday where the author I was talking about was trying to say everything's fiction. When you draw a picture of a dinosaur, it's a fiction. But if a picture of a dinosaur is a fiction, and the picture of a dragon is a fiction, what do we say about the distinction between those two things? Because they're both not entirely the same kind of fiction. One's purely of the imagination, and the other one is constrained by evidence. In the same way, if everything's a story, well, how do we distinguish between stories of fiction and stories about fact? We need to be able to have a more fine-grained, higher-resolution understanding of these particular concepts. Casting everything as a story can be misleading. It, it, it suggests that there's a subjectivity to a whole bunch of things in reality, but there's not. There's subjectivity when it comes to fiction and myth and so on, and easy to variness about that, that isn't the same when it comes to giving an account of physical reality. So that's one thing. Okay. Um, now, someone has asked me when I, upon saying that, um, William, William has asked, but where would you categorize the story of Newton sitting under a tree? Is it perception or a story? Okay, so that is certainly a story, and many think that it wasn't true. <laughs> In fact, that's not how he came up with gravity. <laughs> yeah, we know that he was working on specific problems to do with celestial dynamics. We know that he was considering the work of Kepler and others and trying to figure out the mathematical relationship for gravity. It wasn't just looking at apples falling from apple trees. So that's just a story that's possibly apocryphal, in other words, false. Um, he was able to explain why, eventually. Apples fell to the ground. And not only that, but predict, using his law, at what rate they would fall to the ground. Okay. Moving on. Someone has um, provided me with a, a thread and asked me for my take 
on the thread and I haven't got that. So let me read. It's about the AI thing, sort of. But I might not mention the AI thing because there's something else that the person has asked. A fellow called Arthur has said, quote, for the longest time I found it weird. Yudkowsky would focus on spreading good epistemology as an instrument, as an instrumental goal towards reducing AI risk. The connection felt so remote, and the idea was that this needed this was needed so dire. This need was so dire. After recent online arguments on the topic, oh shit. Um, so this is that that that's talking about Yudkowsky, and he apparently used to spread good epistemology. Um, oh look, you know, he has a version of rationality which I think is very similar to Pinker's, and I don't think it's correct. I don't think it is good epistemology. It's epistemology. It's better than nonsense, but you know, he's a Bayesian through and through. Um, and Yudkowsky, like so many Bayesians, they become prophets. They think they have confidence in the future and they think they can calculate their way to a future. They never understand that you cannot predict the growth of knowledge. You can't. You just can't do it. But they don't take these ideas seriously. And so because they don't, they predict seeing all problems without the solutions and fall into pessimism. Well, there we go. Okay, but anyway, someone has responded to this. Um, uh, Brendan has responded to that tweet saying, What's the TLDR, too long didn't read, on what convinced you of the strong connection rather than the remote connection? And Arthur has responded, the number of times people bring up Popper, two or three messages in the conversation. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and, and then he goes on to say, we figure things out by building models of the world, confronting them confronting, conforming them, I suppose. But he said, oh no, confronting them to reality and refining them as we go. Popper tried to formalize this properly but failed and educated people sometimes uses takes to argue silly things, end quote. Okay, so there's a few problems there. One, this building of models or explanations, which then confront the world, reality, is precisely the thing that Popper explained. This was conjecture and refutation. He's just saying conjecture and refutation using different words. Conjecture? building a model of the world, confronting them to reality and refining them as we go, refutation or attempt to refutation. So that is Popper. Popper tried to formalise this properly and failed. Well, what does formalise mean? He certainly didn't try and mathematise it. He just explained this is the way knowledge creation works. Educated people sometimes use his takes to argue silly things. I don't know who these are. Maybe David Deutsch has finally gained so much fame that, you know, because he's the only one out there. I, I don't see anyone else arguing about, I say arguing, discussing the issue of AGI and invoking Popper. And even then, I don't think he invokes his name very often. He just explains epistemology in the Popperian sense. And maybe he's being cast as one of these educated people. <laughs> but he's... He's a unicorn, as far as I can tell. You know, exceedingly rare person. <laughs> you don't see other David Deutsches out there. I don't see people invoking Popper. I do. Naval does. David does. There's a few of us now that sort of talk about conjectural knowledge and how one 
is not entitled to be confident about doomsday prophecies of anything, but not least, um, not least when it comes to things like AGI and AI. So yeah, that's an issue. Um, one more question. One more question comes from YouTube. It's from John Julius Jamora, and he's asked, "What's your thoughts on difference between education and indoctrination, where truth, being rational, objective, are getting blurred and always redefined, mostly for their own personal biases?" <laughs> End quote. Yep. Okay. So that's the question. Um, all education in the modern sense is indoctrination. That doesn't mean that it's useless, but it does mean that children are required to learn particular lessons and tested upon them. So that's indoctrination. That's pass and fail. A genuine education would be where a student is allowed to choose what they want to learn at all times. Everyone wants to learn to talk, and so they do. They want to communicate. These days, everyone wants to learn to type and read because you need it in order to understand what's happening on the screens that you are using every day. Many students, students, I say students, many people growing up now want to learn to code so they can literally build stuff using that device. They can hold in their hands the phone or the computer. So... This is all going on, um, and but school is still there, you know, moving at the glacial pace. <laughs> um, truth being rational and objective are getting blurred and always redefined. Yeah, in education, um, yeah, of course, they're still teaching via the old tropes. We're giving you the truth. We're being rational. We're being objective. Yes, um, I agree. Yeah, so this is the problem with modern education and with especially tertiary education in particular. Uh, these incorrect ways of understanding how critical thinking works, how philosophy works, how knowledge is generated, and so they fall back on not quite ancient but certainly classical ideas about knowledge. They haven't been updated with Popper and Deutsch, which goes back to that you know, previous person who was sort of having a swipe at Popper and saying that you know he... He failed. He tried to formalize this properly, but failed. People never engage with Popper. They just cast stones. <laughs> All they do is they insult him without ever quoting the man in his own words. Where did he try and formalize this properly? How did he fail? No, it's just an assertion. This is the quality. This is the quality of criticism that you get online against Popper. It's a shame. It's a shame. Um, Uh, I've just noticed that just very recently in the last few minutes, a fellow called Roshan Ali on Twitter has asked me, he's written a series of tweets. So I'll read the series of tweets and I'll answer this and that, that will be it <laughs> for today. But the series of tweets are, any exam or test whose answers are known and fixed, AI will do faster and better as it improves than people. It's the things we can't test for or whose answers are not known or have massive scope for improvement, which AI can't do. If it can, it'll be AGI. For example, we don't know what makes good fiction, so we can't test it. So AI can't write good fiction. We don't know the content future knowledge, so we can't test for it. So AI can't come up with new theories. 
Is this right? David Deutsch talk teacher. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with all of that. Um, as soon as the thing starts to come up with new knowledge, <laughs> new expl explanations, not just versions of pre-existing explanations, but new explanations, then we're going to be in the presence of an AGI. And it's going to explain its own internal state. And yeah, but before we get there, we're going to have a plan for an AGI. And even, you know, playing with chat GPT-4 today. And still, it's making the same kind of errors as 3.5. It's clearly got a bigger database. It's more impressive, but still, we're not seeing new explanations there. Okay, that will do us for today. Gone for over an hour. Um, more again, I would say, um, this time tomorrow. But until then, um, I'll bid you adieu. Goodbye.